Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here at a socially appropriate distance from my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim? Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm glad you could come visit me in the library during uh, my study break while I record a podcast. So. It's always good to see things outside of my neighborhood. <laughs> exactly. Um, so welcome everybody uh, to the latest episode of Embargoed. Uh, we are very happy to be with you once again um, in the midst of, uh, once again, uh, all of the craziness that's going on. Uh, thanks uh, to everyone, especially for all of the good feedback we got on the last episode, which largely concerned uh, the COVID-19 crisis and what that is doing to international trade, um, we are going to hit uh, a couple of COVID-19 related issues again today, but uh, today is more uh, of, a, of a sort of grab bag of, uh, of interesting issues that, that go beyond that. So we're going to start with that, and then we're going to branch out and cover a number of different topics. Um, we're also going to today use a slightly different format than we've used to date. Uh, we're going to do this. Uh, at, this is our first, and I'm sure not our last, FAQ episode. Uh, we are not. Um, I would say that we are going to our, our questions have been formulated in at least the style and spirit of those that you find on the OFAC and BIS and other websites uh, that those of us in this world are so familiar with. Um, I, I confess that we wrote them all ourselves, although they were largely inspired by questions and comments we've gotten in response to uh, prior episodes and other issues that have come up. So, so that's going to be the format today. We're going to do FAQ style uh, I don't profess that these are frequently asked questions. We think that they are fantastically astute questions, and we're going to try to give you actual answers to those fantastically astute questions uh, that maybe are going to prove insightful and helpful. Uh, and so that's how we're going to proceed today. And the usual disclaimer, uh, we're not here giving legal advice. No confidential information is being shared. Um, and uh, with that, I think, uh, Tim, any, any thoughts before we jump into our first question? I think it's fair to say that our questions are just as genuine and just as frequently asked as OFAC's questions or BIS <laughs> questions, um, and, and, and hopefully more astute, but it, there is no legal advice involved in any of these. Yeah, having, having Tim and I having tried to submit many such questions for consideration and publication over the years, we, we know that uh, they, they sometimes come uh, from, from the heads of uh, and pens of practitioners, but oftentimes they are, they are, and most times written by the folks in the office. So we have uh, we have sort of adopted that same approach, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna give this a whirl. So um, with that, why don't I go to FAQ number one, which I will pose to uh, Mr. O'Toole. Um, under FEMA's newly issued temporary rule restricting the export of certain categories of personal protective equipment (PPE), the prospects of a ultimately obtaining approval from FEMA to export such items seem dim. What, if anything, should I do before attempting to export such items from the U.S.? 
Well, I'll start from the end because we just had some late breaking news that late they're breaking. late breaking news, not from FEMA, but from um, CBP. Uh, and, and so the, the customs folks have actually given us better answers to these questions than we had before we started. But let me, let me go back a little bit. So basically, um, we've talked in, in previous podcasts about uh, the, the protectionist wave that's gone around the world with respect to personal protective equipment, masks, ventilators, that have all arisen out of the, the COVID crisis. And so a bunch of countries, I think the last time we talked about it, there were over 50, had created export control restrictions on this sort of equipment, mostly to try and make sure that the, the equipment stayed in country that, so that it could be used for patients inside the country. Since we last spoke, the United States has kind of joined the bandwagon, and it happened over a series of time. President Trump issued three executive orders pursuant to the Defense Production Act, which is a, a 1950s law uh, during the Korean War that allows the government to um, essentially direct uh, private companies in the United States to begin uh, producing items that the government wants it to prioritize and essentially promises that if it produces those items that it will purchase those items and so those companies you know then have an incentive to produce them and have been ordered to produce them so they don't really have any choice and so so over the course of, of March President Trump started to focus in on protective equipment as and ventilators and masks as something that he wanted to prioritize and then uh, on April 3rd so just last Friday um, it came out with a, a memo that reaffirmed you know, these points, that is that the, this sort of equipment was going to be prioritized, it shouldn't be hoarded, um, gave HHS the authority to control the equipment, but then also uh, restricted the equipment, at least presumptively, to domestic use and uh, put FEMA in charge of figuring how, how to make sure that the items didn't get exported, or at least um, these sorts of items got exported only with FEMA approval. Now, that memo and then some subsequent uh, guidance from FEMA suggested that there was going to be a, a really mushy test for determining when uh, items could, could, these sorts of items could be exported from the company or country and it looked like it was going to be uh, a real mess. Um, but today, uh, as I said, um, the Customs and Border Protection Agency came out with some guidance that they had, had it, the, the way that they recited in the memo is that FEMA conveyed to them this guidance and they apparently just wrote it down after taking dictation from FEMA. Um, so FEMA said that uh, they're only going to focus on commercial quantities of these sorts of exports. So if you have uh, personal protective equipment that is either less than $2,500 or fewer than 10,000 units of gloves, masks, or other commodities um, that are referenced in the order, then, then you, will, you will not be subject to these sorts of uh, export restrictions. It also had a bunch of other exclusions from the uh, export restrictions. Exports to Canada or Mexico aren't inc included. Exports to U.S. government entities like military bases are not, not included. U.S. charities not included. Exports by the 3M company, a very interesting exclusion from the, the export uh, restrictions. So if you're, if you're exporting from 3M, you're not included. And, so, so it, and it also actually had a number of other very specific uh, points that exporters of these these sorts of equipment should follow when they want to try to export. And so, you know, before, as we were preparing for this, and even really right up to when we started, we thought that this was going to be a, a really tricky area to navigate, and that if you were thinking about exporting any of these items, you probably should go straight to 
uh, FEMA to figure out whether you could or whether you couldn't. But I think a lot of the questions have been answered. Um, I guess the question I'd pose back to you, Brian, is what else is left besides what's in the, reading this memo and you know, it, it hopefully finding some, some area where your exports are going to be allowed? Yeah, I think the biggest, to me, the biggest thing that jumps out, and I think, and quite frankly, this is indicative of the questions that we've received already in the few days since this temporary rule has been in place or has been uh, public, is the idea that it's it's commercial quantities that they care about. I think there was a lot of um, concern, understandably, right away that um, there was going to be, uh, what, what's gonna happen to, let's say a US company who is trying to ship some of these, and, and again, the five categories that are covered by the temporary rule, I won't, I won't read all the technical specs, but essentially it's respirators, surgical masks, and surgical gloves. Those are sort of certain types of respirators, surgical masks, surgical gloves. So these are things, as anybody, as everybody knows at this point, that are in high demand and that are being used all the time for day-to-day -day work activities, for anytime anybody ventures out of out of a uh, home or a workspace, et cetera. So um, they are in just incredible demand at this point. And so the question really was, well, what happens to U.S. company who's trying to get these to their employees abroad, or who's you know who's looking to export them from the U.S. but isn't really they're not trying to make any. There's no commercial gain really. They're just sort of trying to get them to the right people in their company that are happen to not be located in the US. And so I think the CBP guidance, which gave the, as Tim said, the commercial aspect of this is really what matters. And the um, idea that the $2,500 and the 10,000 units is, are sort of clear benchmarks is, is really, really important. There's also a category for, um, that's identified for exports by critical infrastructure industries for protection of their workers. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another one. And then beyond that, another interesting wrinkle, which um, this, is, this is maybe not a, a matter of complete public record at the moment, but we have been made aware that a, a FEMA official on, I believe, some sort of a, a industry-focused teleconference, maybe late yesterday, so this we're recording April 10. This was, I believe, April 9. Made a comment that said, because of the commercial nature of the restrictions, and because it's not meant to catch and, and deter intra-company transfers, they he essentially on this call or made this statement that said, if you are in that position where you're trying to make an intra-company transfer, attach what he referred to as a letter of attestation to your shipping and export documentation that would identify exactly that fact, that this is for intra-company purposes, it's not for commercial purposes, put it on company letterhead, and that would, and if that happens, he, he said CBP would be under instructions not to detain that shipment. So that's a, that's a big deal. I mean, that, that, that is an important clarification, obviously, um, and, you know, with, with those statements, with the CBP guidance today, you know, I think uh, what we were all looking at and thinking, well, this could be quite messy in terms of how it gets administered and what gets hung up uh, and detained by CBP and how long is FEMA going to take to, you know, sift through all of these various uh, outbound shipments. Now, I think is a much lower order um, potentially lower order problem. Now, obviously, and I'll throw this back to you, for big commercial exporters of these items, 
Um, you know, I think there's big, still big question marks because as you alluded to, the, the path to be able to get approval for this is, was pretty murky. There's a, there's a totality of the circumstances test, which as we well know, in, many, in any context where such a test exists means that the regulator or enforcer can essentially do whatever they want in a given circumstance. Um, and uh, then there's a, another exemption about a certain 80% of uh, production that is uh, going to be sold domestically in the prior 12 months. And, and that's, that, that's also potentially uh, only going to apply, I think, to you know, the biggest uh, producers and providers of these, of these items. But in any event, um, what do we make of, of what's kind of left over and, and what do we think people need to be kind of look, on the lookout for going, going forward? Well, I, I guess I've got two thoughts on that. I mean, the first one is that uh, although, you know, it's come together really at the last minute, um, fortunately, before we started recording rather than after, it does seem like the agencies are really kind of working to try and get some real rules in place to, to really accomplish what I think that, that the point of this, that these all of these orders and, and memos are, is to make sure that um, to the extent that there are shortages in the United States of gloves, respirators, the sort of thing that you would need to treat uh, COVID, that we're not, you know, the companies aren't shipping these items out of the U.S. for profit while there's a shortage here. And so, so I think that, that they, there is kind of, it looks to be a really considered effort, you know, under the, the, the exigency and emergency circumstances um, to get this right. But what is left over is really, if you're not in one of the pretty categorical exemptions, what's left over is this test, which is so mushy. I mean, you know, they're gonna look at the need for the items, the need to avoid supply chain disruptions, hoarding and gouging concerns, the quantity and the quality of the items, humanitarian concerns and foreign policy concerns, and how that would come out when you weigh all of those factors in the balance. Nobody has any real idea. And the other categorical exemption that was the only one before today, the one that for, um, you know, US manufacturers, they have to have a, a pre-existing export agreement. So, so they had to be exporting this stuff before the crisis happened, and they still had to ha sell 80% um, of their items within the United States. So they basically had to be a small, you know, a, a one-fifth exporter before this happened. And, and you know, that, that isn't how the free market works. Usually there's supply and demand, and until recently, the demand for these sorts of goods was not overwhelming, and now it is. And so, so it is kind of a weird situation where you might have companies in the United States that had a foreign market for these goods. And granted, you know, if there's shortages, there are shortages, and I understand why the United States would want to keep the, the items in. But if there aren't, then it, it really does seem odd that you would stop these companies from export, exporting these, these goods um, simply because last year their sales of, of masks in the U.S. or gloves in the U.S. was 78% um, as opposed to 22% exports. They don't qualify for this exception. I, I have a real hard time figuring out why that exemption even exists and what it's designed to do. Yeah, I, I think so. So I'll just make two final, final points and then we can move on. Um, yeah, it is fascinating because, you know, on the last episode, we did talk about the, at, at some length about the restrictions in the EU for essentially the same reasons, which is they decided to kind of close ranks and say that we need to really look after ourselves and member states and make sure that this, the, there's not an outflow of these items that are desperately needed at the moment. And obviously the U.S. is taking a slightly different approach and has slightly different rules as we tend to with just about everything in the trade space, but um, it will be interesting to see 
as the rubber hits the road here over the next few weeks and months, what this, how this all works, what it, you know, what, what feedback we're getting both from, you know, our clients and colleagues who are dealing with this stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how this plays out and if, and if it helps. And, and to your point, kudos to the agencies to actually getting some real guidance out quickly on this because, um, you know, we're, we're, we never mean to be sort of unduly harsh, but uh, as anybody who deals in this space knows, there is sometimes the maddening situation where, um, you know, the leaving uncertainty in place or the strategic ambiguity of certain regulations is, is just a, a fact of life and something we know that is there purposefully. Uh, this is a situation where that really is just not, uh, you know, that's just not possible. And so right. to credit to them to, to clearing that up. The, the last thing I'll say is, um, for those who are not um, going to remain uh, sort of on the right side of, uh, of this, they're, uh, you know, they're, in terms of enforcement on, on these issues, there's injunctive uh, tools to um, stop folks from violating this. The DPA carries criminal penalties. But one of my favorites from my days as a prosecutor, uh, smuggling. If somebody is trying to, you know, let's say, uh, misidentify certain goods on the way outbound uh, so that they wouldn't get caught by this and, and that's picked up, that's a, that's a good, that's potentially a good smuggling charge. That's a 10-year criminal hit, uh, you know, max. And that's, um, that's something that kind of goes along with a lot of other export violations. But, uh, you know, just to the extent that, again, Presumably, everybody who's listening to this is a good law-abiding exporter and wants to do it the right way. But uh, just you know, keeping in mind that people who may be inclined to sort of pay, play fast and loose, or to think, or to be aware of people who are doing that, that's that's a that's a clear uh, that's a clear downside criminal exposure risk here. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point, and and it'll be interesting to see how this gets enforced, given that CBP and FEMA and HHS are just not normally in the business of enforcing the export laws. So, so maybe they'll take a take a novel approach, but maybe they'll look like OFAC and BIS. Yeah, and I mean, for, well, for egregious cases, I'm sure that my my former my former colleagues at DOJ will hear about it or will get yeah. referred over. But oh, we'll absolutely. All right, should we do number two? Let's go to number two, FAQ number two. I work in the medical research field. Given the unprecedented level of collaboration and coordination going on right now across the global research community related to COVID-19, are there any specific US export control related considerations that I need to be aware of? So I'm happy to report this one actually has a pretty good answer, a pretty hopeful answer, and a pretty helpful answer to to all of you out there who may not have our, who may not have focused on this. So, this is obviously largely uh, aimed at sort of the research, uh, medical research community. Uh, you know, whether it's private or or at a you know in an academic institution, um, and we have been getting some questions about this. Um, you know, CBP and FEMA have been quick to remind everybody with even just on the temporary rule that they still need, everybody still needs to be aware that U.S. export control laws still apply. So regardless of whether you're going to be compliant with the temporary rule or you're going to be able to export your PPE, um, you know, under the, the guidelines uh, and that we just talked about, you still need to be worrying about uh, if, if you have something that's uh, military item, dual use item, subject to the AR, um, you still have to worry about complying with US export control rules. So, of course, uh, 
in the medical sort of research area, there's many, many items that obviously flow around the world that are US origin or have um, more than de minimis US content. Many of those fortunately are not very heavily controlled and they're EAR 99. Uh, so essentially no license required really anywhere, just only the sort of specific uh, end users, you know, entity list entities, certain embargo countries, certain end uses that may be off limits, but otherwise no license required. When it comes to this particular crisis and the sort of um, the uh, absolute, you know, just a wave of research and collaboration that's going on right now to to find a uh, to find a vaccine and to um, research and better understand the virus right now. The good news is that BIS, if if people have not seen this, I, I encourage you to go uh, grab this. BIS back in February, so this is pretty early days in the states. Um, I put out some guidance because um, the sort of a very similar. Um, SARS coronavirus um, listing is in the commerce control list. That was the old sort of pre-existing SARS coronavirus. That was very heavily controlled. That is controlled under uh, chemical and biological weapons column number one. So if you're familiar with the country chart, the commerce country chart, that means essentially you need a license to send that anywhere. So if you're doing research, whether it's that or it's genetic materials or it's any of the technology used to develop any of that, then you're gonna, you would need a license under of the old SARS coronavirus. But what BIS decided and what they announced in this guidance is that they regard the new COVID-19 virus as being distinct and they are not, even though sort of on, on paper, you might think it would be classified the same way. They have said, we are going to treat COVID-19 and all of its genetic material as ER99. So that is really good news because that means that it can, again, basically be transferred and shared freely without a license with those few exceptions I mentioned. One, one last point I'll make, and then I'll throw it to Tim for a few quick thoughts is, um, Whenever you're talking about medical research, uh, deemed exports, meaning exports where there's no physical export of the product, but uh, it is being exposed in the U.S. to a non-U.S. person, to a foreign person, um, and in many instances, if it's depending on how it's controlled, you may actually need a license for that. Anybody who works in this space knows that very well. Anybody who works in this space, I would hope, has in place already some compliance procedures to deal with deemed export uh, challenges that they have in their labs or their research facilities. And, and that involves tracking um, you know, nationalities and citizenship status of uh, employees and um, understanding uh, access controls on whether it's tech, you know, tech data or uh, physical access to, to those virus uh, materials, the genetic materials, uh, or what have you. So, Hopefully that is uh, for most labs and research facilities that is already the case. But, um, and given that this again, COVID-19 itself is ER99, hopefully that is not such a huge concern here, but it is one issue that we run into a lot and that we hear from clients about often. And so it is just one other thing to sort of keep in mind on the export controls front when it's, when it's you're talking about um, medical research. Yeah, I mean, so so I do think this is kind of another agency bureaucrat success story. So good job, guys. Um, so I, I think that normally you would have expected the um, you know the the SARS 
related but new version of the coronavirus to be classified for export purposes uh, in the same way that the, the, the old one was. And that would have created a problem for research. That is, um, if, you, if you couldn't transmit the virus uh, to, for export without getting a license, it's gonna slow things down. If you wanna do international research on this sort of virus, um, having, a, having a high export classification could have presented a problem. But in the guidance, I, I do think that the, that was actually taken into account. I mean, it was basically, the guidance was, we know about the SARS virus from back in 2003, and that's why it's classified for export. There's no really good reason to export this thing. Um, and so we want to want controls on that. But this one, we're still, we're still kind of trying to figure out. And so for the moment, it's going to be classified as EAR99, making it easy to export and, and easy to do research. And so I assume they'll revisit that classification at some point. But in the, in the meantime, um, it's a very helpful classification to, to be able to let scientists do what we're all hoping that they're doing as quickly as possible. Agreed. Okay, with that, let's move on to the next question. Um, I've seen recent press reports detailing the US proposal for a transitional government in Venezuela. Completely shifting gears here. Assuming that proposal or something resembling it were to be adopted, would US sanctions, sanctions targeting Venezuela go away altogether? So the short answer is yes, um, but let me talk a little bit more about the, the Venezuela um, the proposal and and also just generally uh, talk about a non COVID related topic. So so on March 31st, uh, the U.S. the U.S. Uh, State Department uh, proposed a or made a proposal for a democratic transition framework for Venezuela. That's what the proposal is called, and it's a it's a multi step proposal that essentially um, would would have the the Maduro government um, share power. And, and so, uh, you know, we'll talk in a second, I guess, about how likely it is that this gets accepted. But, but the, the Maduro government would share power. Um, first, they'd have to return the National Assembly to power. Um, the Supreme Court would have to list, lift a, an order of contempt against the, the national, Venezuela National Assembly. Um, and currently, the, the members of the National Assembly and, and the National um, Constituent Assembly um, which is which is kind of a subset of that that has really taken power from the National Assembly, that would need to be dissolved. And at that point, the U.S. would lift the sanctions on the um, on the uh, constituent assembly members who are currently under U.S. sanctions. If the government then released political prisoners and gave executive power to uh, to a new electoral national electoral council. Um, as well as to a council of state. So essentially they'd have to, a new electoral council that would call for elections, and then it would have a council of state that took over executive branch power. Um, the council of state would be power sharing. So the current Maduro party um, would have essentially veto power in that. And then the multi-party um, Guaido co coalition would have uh, a certain number of, of votes in the council of state. Essentially the council of state would be a provisional government um, including a fifth member who would serve as an, an independent president and wouldn't be permitted to be a candidate in any elections. And so essentially you'd have this executive body that would be a coalition body of the current forces. It would try to have some sort of neutral who's not interested in becoming um, a president him or herself um, as, the, as the leader. If that 
were to happen, if the, the powers were to be ceded, you know, the question was, what would happen to sanctions? Well, as soon as the Council of State is established and foreign security services would then need to depart um, unless approved by a three-quarter vote of the new National Assembly, um, all of the U.S. sanctions on the oil sector, all the U.S. sanctions on the government of Venezuela, and all U.S. sanctions on Petroleos de Venezuela, PDVSA, would be suspended. They'd be immediately suspended. Not, then, lift, not lifted. Not, that's important. Just right. suspended. That's right. right. That's right. And then, and then after they suspend the sanctions, essentially there'd be there would be um, an international community would provide humanitarian support, electoral support, economic support, medical support. Basically, a huge amount of of humanitarian support would come in. Come in. There's a proposal of a truth and reconciliation commission um, to to work with uh, to work with uh, what what the proposal calls victims and their families and and would would also involve uh, a participation by the UN and a number of um, a, a number of uh, amnesty laws that are that are similar to ones that were took place in in uh, other other countries where they've had truth and reconciliation pr con, uh, 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 provisions, and then in six to twelve months there would be an election, and if the if international bodies mentioned in the the proposal were to certify that election as free and fair. Um, all sanctions would be would be lifted, and so it's essentially a path towards suspending sanctions first by by essentially transitioning power to uh, an executive branch body that is not controlled by Maduro, but is also not controlled by the opposition, but is essentially a coalition kind of good government type body that takes interim power before an election takes place. Suspended sanctions then and lifted sanctions at the end of free and fair elections. And so it does seem like a pretty sensible proposal. I think the big question, which I'll throw back to you, Brian, is I mean, what are the chances that Maduro um, takes this? I know that the State Department has said that they think the chances are good because he's now under indictment and Venezuela is in, in crisis, but I, you know, I, I, I still don't see really what's in it for Maduro. Yeah, so I think a couple of important points there. That's a good summary of it. And this is, I, I would encourage any, anyone who is interested to download the point by point plan. It's 13 points, I believe. It's on, uh, you can just grab it from the State Department website. It's very, it is pretty complicated. Tim did a good job of summarizing it there. Um, I, so I think a, a couple of things. This plan, by, by all the reports that I've seen, is pretty similar to plans that have been discussed now on and off for a year or two. And the sticking point previously has always been whether Maduro and his people him, themselves were going to be the ones that get to call the elections. And so obviously this, um, this sort of power sharing arrangement that's contemplated, you know, his party would have some role, but he himself would not be the one driving that. Um, so that's, that's an important thing. And, and the, uh, his, of course, I think his foreign minister, pretty much as soon as this was announced, was released a statement rejecting this out of hand. So, I mean, that's, a, that's predictable, but, um, you know, so what, what, uh, what the odds are that, that he and his uh, sort of inner circle would embrace this is, is hard to know at this point. But, but I do think the key, couple of key things before we do, I think, pivot to what are the important kind of peripheral, not, not so peripheral, but the issues that are backgrounding all this, which are the indictment of Maduro and, and a lot of the top officials that we talked about the last time. And the, um, you know, just the, the fact that, again, PDVSA and the oil sector generally have been, um, you know, it seems like every every dam, uh, every hole in the dam that has allowed a little revenue and a little oil 
to move and to, a little money to come into the coffers has are slowly being plugged and and i mean uh that that is i think what is uh potentially going to drive this thing to to some movement is the the indictments and the and the the state of the economy and the fact that just the, there's just nowhere to get um further money and resources at a certain point and so but i but i would say to the two important things to keep an eye on as tim said this the formation of this council of state which would essentially be the interim uh executive branch uh the the removal of the foreign security services that's largely i believe targeted at cuba um that would that's a key inflection point that would be sanctions suspended on the government PDVSA, and the oil sector that would be a huge that would be a huge relief if that if those things were to open back up and then of course free and fair elections to ultimately remove all the sanctions um you know that that would hopefully be where this all ends up if we if you if you're getting down that road but um that's a, that's a long way off so to throw to throw it back to you um you know the idea that maduro and a lot of the top um you know uh folks in the government are now under indictment in the us for you know narco trafficking money laundering etc as we detailed last time i i read actually and i hadn't realized this at the time i i made reference to the 15 million dollar reward i think i called it a bounty the last time for the um arrest and conviction of maduro i saw somewhere that that is that is the number 3 the third highest reward offered by the us government in the past 20 years behind only bin laden and al zawahiri so this is that is that is serious that is we're in serious terrain if that is the case right so maduro that is, is doing he's he's gotten pretty notorious notorious yeah yeah so that is no, that is that is to be taken seriously that's not to be taken lightly and i think the idea that the indictments come out a couple weeks ago the plan gets rolled out two weeks later this is that's obviously in concert and sequenced and purposeful that this was done in that way to really turn up the heat to the maximum levels to to telegraph also i think to the venezuelan um political community and also to the global community who uh, perhaps might be off limits to remain as part of a transitional or a you know next level government because if any of these folks who are under indictment are deeply involved going forward then I have a hard time believing that anyone's gonna um, you know view this as uh, as sort of a good faith effort to move things forward so anyway w so I'll throw it back to you so with that and with again what we talked about the last time the Rosneft sub subsidiaries that have been sanctioned and the further and now the the announcement following that that they're going to divest and they've they've sold those they sold all their Venezuelan interests they're getting out of the game in Venezuela. Um, what do we make of the other the other kind of maximum pressure elements of this that the U.S. continues to apply in in addition to being the party that's trying to convene this transitional framework? Well, I mean, you know, we don't have any way objective way to measure it um, on our own, but but the the statements that we've heard from the state department about kind of the facts on the ground seem to indicate that things might be changing so so i i noticed that elliot abrams gave a press conference right around the same time as this and said that um one one success story from the u.s perspective is that venezuelan uh, oil exports have gone from 800,000 barrels i think a, a 
day or a week, but the number was 800,000 to 500,000, which is, you know, almost cutting it in in half in a short amount of time. If that's true, and again, we don't have any way to measure it, but if that is true, you can see that that, um, that would be a, a big problem for Maduro and a big problem for the Venezuelan government and, and may force them to come to the table. In the same way, if you've got um, you know, Rosneft really leaving and TNK, it's kind of the sanctions evasion tool leaving as well. Um, it, it may well be that there really isn't any alternative if they want, you know, if they want to get oil sales back moving than to come to the table. And I think that's the plan. Um, and if it's true that they're really successfully cutting down on the, the oil sales and the oil exports, uh, it, it might work. It might work. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. So this is going to be this is this is I think every time we talk about Venezuela, we say keep an eye on this. Uh, this one really is a situation that's rapidly evolving, and with some of the zigs and zags and the haymakers that have been thrown here in the past, uh, you know, month or so, uh, it'll be really interesting to see what comes next on Venezuela. I don't think we anticipated we were gonna we when we were getting ready for the last one we didn't anticipate Maduro was gonna be under indictment when we recorded right. and we weren't necessarily con, uh, anticipating the U.S. to come out with this plan. So uh, yeah, so full sanctions relief for Venezuela is certainly on the table. In you know the it's not going to be six months from now, but you know in the next few years certainly it, it's it's on the table. So um, something to, to certainly keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. I, I think we'll, we'll be talking about Venezuela quite a bit for a while, but it, it does seem like a, a situation where there is some chance that this could, that this could change things, but, but you, you just never know because again, um, Maduro seems pretty entrenched and every time you think that he's um, on his way down, that it, it does, he does seem to stick around and nothing seems to change. So we'll, yeah. we'll be watching this. Yeah. Um, but let's turn to the UK since we okay. can't actually go anywhere. Um, but virtually we can go to the UK. Um, for years, sanctions watchers have been speculating about whether a non-US enforcer, potentially one in the UK, would step up and take aggressive action in a manner that would demand attention or, or at or near that given to OFAC. With the big penalty leveled against Standard Charter by OFSI, the often Office of Foreign Sanctions Implementation in the UK, has that day finally come? This one's really interesting because uh, I think we have, we know from all of our, we spend a lot of time in Europe. We have a lot of, and in the UK in particular, we have a lot of clients in Europe and the UK. Um, you know, to a person over the years, when you discuss enforcement risk and you discuss with compliance professionals, what are they really worried about? It's, it's always OFAC. And it's, you, you hardly ever hear a, even a whisper of a, a domestic enforcement agency when it comes to sanctions. But I will say, the uh, my hat is off to uh, Her Her Majesty's Treasury's uh, Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation OFSI, um, because this is a significant penalty. Not only a significant penalty, but uh, I, again, I would encourage people, um, especially our friends in the UK. Um, and or really throughout the the EU, but any and anybody who does business in any of those places to read this one. It's a short um, it's a short announcement of the of the ultimate penalty. It's about five pages. It is a very sophisticated um, uh, treatment of of the of the infraction that happened here. And and to sort of summarize briefly, 
Um, back in 2014, when the Crimea crisis was going on, the EU followed the uh, and the uh, put in place some sanctions uh, fairly similar to what the U.S. has in place and put in place at the time. Um, and their their sanctions do differ. The EU sanctions do differ from the U.S.'s. There are some restrictions, um, not unlike the Directive One, that deal with sort of uh, restrictions on loans and debt and equity. Um, and this particular uh, series of loans that was the subject of this penalty, this enforcement action, um, were with a, uh, they were with a subsidiary of Sparebank. Sparebank, which is a, a, a directive one entity under the OFAC, uh, Russia-Ukraine sanctions, is on the EU list. And um, Denise Bank, which is the sub of uh, Sparebank, was the um, was the counterparty here for these loans. And the, so the interesting thing is, um, as, as recited in the penalty notice, uh, Standard Chartered, when, when they were added to the list, they sort of ceased business. They understood that they had some obligations. There were some exemptions that were available to allow loans to continue to be made um, that had to do, and I won't get into the sort of the technical aspects of this, but had to do with sort of four EU goods and EU trade essentially was kind of the hook for those yeah, loans. I, I do want to stop you there. I mean, that is so different from the U.S. sanctions. Yes. I mean, basically, <laughs> U.S. says no loans to Spurbank, and the EU sanctions are no loans to Spurbank unless the loans help the EU. <laughs> because they don't want to hurt EU trade, legitimate right. EU trade, exactly. Right. And so they, so in the penalty notice, they it is, the approaches are different. And, and as I'm getting to, the, the ultimate penalty here is quite... Um, a market difference from the way that the U.S. has enforced the Russia sanctions. And so there were a hundred or so loans that were made to Denise Bank. They, they uh, OFSI decided that um, about 70 or so um, were outside of this exemption, so were not permitted. Um, they further, though, um, what they did was they ended up narrowing it to, at the end of this, about 21 loans because the enforcement authority that they acted under was not actually in place until April of 2017. So basically from April 2017 till the conduct was ceased in 2018 and it was self-reported, there was a VSD here, there was a self-reporting by Standard Chartered. Um, there were about 21 loans. Those 21 loans were about roughly $100 million US. It was a little under, it was 95 or 96,000 pounds, I believe. Um, and so on that basis, they ended up imposing a, um, a 20 million pound penalty for um, making those loans in contravention of the relevant rules that were in place uh, with the EU sanctioned parties. And so um, again, this is a pretty, pretty significant penalty. And one thing, so two things I'll say before I throw it to you, um, it struck me that the way that the penalty notice was structured is even sort of similar to the way OFAC structures theirs, because at the very end, there are sort of like, here's some compliance notes that everybody should be aware of and some things to be thinking about in terms of dealing with sanctioned parties, uh, understanding, it, just identifying them is not enough. You have to have a risk-based program that takes into account how you're, how you're dealing with them and the types of um, transactions you're permitted, not permitted to engage in. Uh, you know, mentions of sort of uh, verifying, auditing, et cetera, all of the types of things that we hear from OFAC on a regular basis. So to the extent that there's sort of a, some common ground that's being reached here or a common language, um, you know, that I think is really a useful thing to take note of. Um, but the other thing is, um, 
you know, OFAC has never leveled a financial penalty against anybody under the Russia-Ukraine program that's anything approaching this. Right. They've put a lot of people on the list. They have put a lot of people on the SSI list. They put a lot of people on the SCN list really under those authorities, but largely that seeks to deter folks in Europe and Asia and the UK from dealing with those people because they're worried about secondary sanctions and, and other um, and other things like that. And, and they know that banks will stay away if uh, largely if they are on these lists. But, um, you know, again, so a tip of the cap to OFSI for for taking some some pretty aggressive action. And, you know, I've already seen a number of articles like, is this a new day for UK sanctions enforcement? You know, look, I think the jury's out on that. We'll have to see. But I think given the way this was done and structured and the thoughtful way it was all put together and the uh, thoughtful way that it's being presented as a, you know, a teaching point and a kind of cautionary tale for others in the financial and other sectors to look at in the UK and the EU, certainly, if not here in the US as well, for anybody who does business there. Um, I think this is something that people need to be mindful of and need to be thinking about, not, uh, not just OFAC. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I noticed the same thing is that the, the off-sea uh, description, that what, what OFAC would call the web notice, um, looked pretty similar to an OFAC web notice, complete with the little, you know, the, in the UK, they have a very British way of describing it as compliance notes, and uh, OFAC basically just put tax it on as kind of the message here is. Um, so a little <laughs> bit more direct in it with OFAC and a little bit more indirect with the, the UK version, but, but very similar structure in terms of the penalty notices. And so, so I do think that, that um, Offsea, much like we saw with Airbus. So with Airbus, I think it was one of the, the first real collaboration where, where you had uh, the Europeans taking the lead on enforcement um, in the FCPA space, but also uh, in the ITAR space. Here, you've got uh, you know, a real, uh, very toothy uh, penalty, much, much harsher than anything that we've seen in the States in terms of a fine. I mean, you, you mentioned the designations, which really put a hit on you know, the world economy when they came out, particularly the designation of Deripaska. But in terms of a fine, you know, we've only really seen two in the Russia space. We saw the one against Exxon, which has been overturned, and it was $2 million, million for um, signing, uh, signing a deal with an SDN. And then we had this Haverly Systems that came out a couple of years ago, maybe a year, year and a half ago, that dealt with, um, it was the same sort of Russian loan provision, but there it was in this really ticky-tack context where the OFAC treats late payment of a, of a bill. So you provide somebody with services uh, that is on the list and you're not allowed to loan them anything and they pay you later than 14 days or 60 days or whatever the, 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 the time tenor, the tenor of debt, the tenor of are, debt yeah. that's allowed in, in OFAC speak, um, that, that that is a, a de facto loan, and and that was what Haverly got in trouble for because they they tried to collect on a debt that they didn't want to give a loan. Haverly took that you know the, their their counterparty took the damn loan from them, and and they were trying to collect uh, collect late, and in OFAC's view that was punishable, but I think it was something around a seventy five thousand dollar fine. And so those are the only two we've seen. I mean twenty you know twenty four million dollars, twenty million pounds whatever the equivalent is, is, is a pretty serious fine. And, you know, it looks like it would have been a lot higher, but for the fact that, that Opsi just came into being in 2017, so we couldn't go back and find companies for stuff that took place before they went into Yeah, the, if, they, if, you, they'd, if they had, if they had uh, taken all 100 loans into account, the number would have been 
significantly higher. Also, uh, they note that Standard Charter got credit, got 30%, got a 30% haircut off the penalty because they did have a voluntary disclosure. They did conduct a thorough in internal investigation. They did cooperate. So again, in terms of similar aligning incentives, and I think, you know, look, maybe it's only a matter of time before we see one of these cases where it's a joint OFSI OFAC enforcement action, just like Absolutely. we saw with, with uh, you know, SFO, DOJ, and, and the French authorities, right, on Airbus. Um, so the, again, the common language and thinking through if you are an in-house uh, investigations or compliance person at, at a at a bank or some other entity that may be dealing with OFSI on these types of issues. And, um, you know, again, sort of, a, I think that's, it's actually a good, it's actually a good thing that they are speaking sort of from the same uh, sheet of music. It, it just, the question will be obviously, you know, when the time comes that these things truly overlap, what is, how is that going to get hashed out and will they be able to sort of cooperate and coordinate in the way that we've seen um, on, on the criminal side of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely worth watching going forward because um, because if Offsea starts to become a, a real player in this area, um, you know, there are a lot of a lot of banks in the the UK. So so I think we could be in for some 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 more of this. Okay. So with that, let's move to the next question. Um, despite being the oldest of the U.S. sanctions programs, or perhaps precisely because it's the oldest. The Cuba program seems to be the most consistently misunderstood and misinterpreted. What are the three most interesting or important aspects of this unique program that people should keep in mind when evaluating Cuba sanctions questions? So Cuba is such a weird program. I mean, it, it's the oldest program. Uh, it dates back to the Kennedy administration. It is the program that really created, it's the program that created OFAC. Um, you know, it's the Cuban assets regulations. And so the, the I don't think it's a surprise that, that when they, they formally named this part of the treasury or the sub-agency of the treasury, it became the Office of Foreign Assets Control. I mean, that is really what uh, the Cuban sanctions were designed to do. But they're weird in part because they their, their statutory basis is um, this old uh, World War II law, Trading with the Enemies Act. Mm. Um, Twee, and so so that's the statute that authorizes these sanctions, which is not the normal statute. Most of the other sanctions programs are authorized by the um, IEPA. It's um, the only one. It's the only one now. Right. It's now. the right. Yeah. So so basically, you've got this weird statutory authority where which has lower penalties, but also creates all sorts of different language for these sanctions, and it's just a different rubric. Now it's a it, it's an embargo like the embargo against Iran, like the embargo against Syria. Um, but what's notable about it, you asked for three most interesting. So one thing that's notable is that every Cuban national um, is treated like an SDN for U.S. law purposes. That is that it is, it, it is prohibited for a U.S. person or any person subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Um, or within the jurisdiction of the United States is the way this, this is phrased. They don't use U.S. persons like all the other um, uh, sanctions programs do. They use a different term. It includes um, companies that are owned or controlled by U.S. persons, so U.S. companies. Um, so it's broad in that sense. But then it, it, it essentially says if you do any business with a Cuban national, that, that's prohibited. So you can't deal in the property of anybody in Cuba, which is different than all the other sanctions programs. Now, they have similar features in the sense that there's import and export of services, but no other program says essentially, if you are a national of a country 
that's sanctioned, that you're treated as a sanctioned person um, in the same way that that most SDNs are. So you've got a, their property is blocked and and that sort of thing. So that that makes them complicated, but also makes them, I think, broader than than any of the other sanctions programs. The other thing is the travel ban, which is very unusual. I mean, there is no travel ban for Iran. There, there is kind of a travel ban for North Korea, but it's not part of the sanctions program. It's a passport restriction that the State Department implemented recently. There's a general travel ban and it's congressional. And, and that is weird too. I mean, that is, and, and you saw this back in the Obama administration when President Obama decided as a matter of foreign policy that he wanted to relax the sanctions against Cuba and particularly the travel restrictions. Um, he could only do so much because Congress passed a law back in the mid '90s, the Helms-Burton Act, that that uh, really that that tied the president's hands on what they could and couldn't do with respect to Cuba. And one thing that is you know clear is that the president is not allowed to allow U.S. persons, U.S. citizens, U.S. residents to go to Cuba for tourism purposes. That is illegal. Congress has made it illegal. The president can't change that. Only Congress can change that. You know by passing a law, and so. The Obama administration um, allowed people to go to Cuba um, without a license for a lot of reasons, but tourism wasn't one of them. Um, and I think there was some concern when President Trump came in that that some of the exceptions were so broad that people really were going to Cuba for, for tourism purposes. And, and I think the people, the people exception that allowed travel to Cuba, as long as you're essentially going to see the Cuban people as part of your trip, um, was 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 seen as so broad that it essentially undermined the congressional law, and and the Trump administration has now um, pulled back on that. But I think that the travel ban um, on Cuba is, is 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 kind of apart from the the Cuban nationals being SDNs is kind of another interesting part of that. And then uh, this Helms Burton law um, to me is kind of the the third. Um, the, the third pillar of weirdness that is Cuba, because we have this law that was passed in the mid 90s that allows um, lawsuits in the United States against um, foreign companies, US companies that really that do business in Cuba. I mean, the, the, the premise for the lawsuit is that you essentially have to be, um, I think, doing something with confiscated property. But but since the, when Castro took over in the 60s, they, they confiscated almost all property, virtually all Cuban property has been uh, confiscated in some way. And because that, that provision was so broad and so kind of, and created so much uh, potential civil exposure in the US courts, every president until recently has suspended particularly that application of, of, of the Helms-Burton Act um, until President Trump activated it a, a year or two ago as part of this maximum pressure strategy. And that the Helms-Burton law, we, I think we saw the first result recently in a case against American Airlines because the, the airport is one place in Cuba that has been at least arguably confiscated. And so it's confiscated property and someone sued American Airlines for using the, the airport in Havana. Um, but, and I, my, my, recollection is that American at least won at the motion to dismiss stage in the district court. So I think that's where that case stands. But but the, the, that law is only recently activated, even though it's been on the books for 20 some years. Yeah, it's only it's just a year a ago. Weird law. Yeah. It's yeah. just a weird law. It's essentially a law that allows, as part of the sanctions against a, a foreign government, uh, just anybody to bring suit in the United States against the government for confiscating property of the prior government back in the 1960s. I mean, it's just, it, it really is a weird exercise of U.S. jurisdiction. Yeah. So kudos to you, by the way, for giving three. 
giving three reasons, you you answered the question. That's all right. That's very, <laughs> congratulations. The the only thing I'll so the last thing and the only thing I'll say on this is um, in a, another important. So I think for all the reasons you said and and a few others as well. One thing we see consistently, and this is from our, the questions we get from clients, and it's also just if you watch the enforcement actions that come out, uh, certainly from OFAC on on these issues, is that these these truly are some of the most misunderstood and misapplied uh, sanctions around the world. And I think part of it is this sort of U.S. owned and controlled, and so there are you know there are so many companies and individuals that are out in Europe and other parts in Latin America that are, that are, would, you know, the, wherever they sit, that country, they have no uh, restrictions on doing business with Cuba. And so there's, it's hard to kind of keep straight what, it, oh, right, I am, I am working for a company that's under control by a U.S. company or U.S. person. Therefore, I am subject to those same rules. It's not because if I'm sitting in Spain or sitting in Switzerland or Brazil or someplace else that I can just have free reign to deal with Cuba. Um, in the same way that I might if I was not, uh, didn't have that U.S. tie. So that's that's one thing. And um, similarly, I think to the broader point there is, the U.S. pretty much stands alone with respect to Cuba at this point. There are there are no comparable sanctions that you see anywhere from the EU or any of the other places around the world where we would expect to. And that creates some tension. And you mentioned Helms-Burton. And so in the mid-90s when Helms-Burton was passed, there was a fear um, that's what actually prompted the passage of the initial EU blocking sanctions and blocking regulation, which is now causing so much headache for folks dealing with Iran issues um, because of the secondary sanctions aspect of US's Iran program. Uh, back in the 90s, when that it, Cuba was one of the was was at the fore of those concerns. And essentially it um, there was what ended up happening at the time is that there was just sort of a everybody kind of backed away after kind of getting their backs up there and, and the secondary sanctions aspect was just never, never pushed, never enforced. And, uh, and, and it's only been recently that it's become more of an issue, but um, it creates a lot of tension and a lot of, uh, a lot of confusion when you're dealing with, um, again, connections in the EU, connections in Canada, this is an issue in Canada, sort of counter sanctions and, um, you know, sort of their, their domestic anti-boycott laws don't permit uh, recognition of the U.S. Uh, you know embargo on Cuba, and so um, that's another reason why this ends up being so sort of so complicated when you're dealing with any kind of um, kind of non-U.S. but with perhaps some U.S. connection to Cuba business. Uh, it just creates a lot of uh, misaligned incentives and and a lot of confusion. Yeah, I, I do think the Cuba sanctions program is the most hated sanctions program around the world by our allies and our non-allies alike. It really has virtually no support outside the United States. I, right. I think it's probably fair to say it has absolutely no support outside the United States. Right. I think it's fair to say that the rest of the global community thinks it's outlived its useful life. And yet the U.S. Um, really clings to it. And of course, under the Obama administration, he, uh, he was sort of putting it on a path toward potentially phasing it out. And then uh, Trump has, of course, completely reversed course and now sort of revitalized it. So it remains to be seen what will happen uh, going forward. But um, in any event, we have, in response to some prior episodes and, and just uh, generally, we've gotten a number of kind of requests for Cuba, some Cuba yeah. content. So we decided we would so do a Cuba. A lot, of, a lot of Cuba demand out there. Yeah. So we were trying to meet it. All right. Yes. <laughs> well, let's go to FAQ 6. 
Um, and that one reads from our listener, our listeners. Um, <laughs> I am a trade compliance professional at a multinational company. Given the state of the, the current global economy, my company has been forced to consider a number of transactions, both to address supply chain disruptions and increase liquidity with unfamiliar parties and on timelines that are unprecedented. How worried should I be that the company, or even me personally, is going to open itself up to exposure if we miss something in the course of what feels like a constant cycle of hyperspeed due diligence? So this is this kind of builds on a, on a discussion we had the last time with respect to uh, you know, compliance considerations in the midst of, and due diligence considerations in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, I think, um, and, and in the interim since the last episode, we actually noted, and this is part of what prompted this question, we noted um, uh, an article that was written by uh, our friend Michael Griffiths with GIR and uh, in the Just Sanctions uh, um, component of GIR, and it was a profile that he did of my former colleague, Jay Bratt, who's the chief of the counterintelligence and export control section at National Security Division, DOJ. And I encourage everybody to go and read that. Um, it's, a, it's a very good profile. Um, and uh, toward the end of the piece, Michael asked Jay uh, about whether there would be leniency accorded to any uh, companies or individuals who, who may uh, break the law in the time of COVID-19, and and Jay was clear that the you know the standard is the standard when it comes to the law, and and we have to apply uh, the law, and and maybe there'll be some defendants down the road that make those arguments, but um, the law is the law essentially. Um, so that I think prompted us to think about this a bit more. You know, I think there's kind of two layers to this that I'll that I'll address, and then kick it to you. So number one is from the DOJ perspective. Um, you know, in criminal activity, willful criminal violations of export and sanctions laws, um, you know, look, th those are obviously the most serious, the most egregious. Those require, um, you know, a knowing, willful, purposeful violation of the law, um, especially now if, if, if folks are going to be um, perhaps ex uh, exploiting the current chaos um, you know, for some kind of commercial benefit in the midst of that and breaking the law in the process, evading sanctions, uh, you know, disregarding export control uh, laws that they know to apply, et cetera, et cetera. No, no surprise to anybody whatsoever that, that uh, the authorities and the uh, enforcers, when the time comes, if they are aware of that, will come down hard on people like that. No, no doubt, no doubt. And I think that's the situation that Jay was really referring to. Right. Now, I think the more interesting question is on the civil administrative side of things, when, uh, you know, the OFAC and the BIS uh, side of things is if, if we are, if I'm an in-house in compliance person and we're trying to sell some assets because we desperately need liquidity to keep the lights on, and again, we talked about this a bit last time, we're, we're deviating from our normal procedures, we're dealing with somebody that maybe we haven't dealt with before, um, that was just recently introduced or made known to us, um, you know, how do we feel good about the process that we're applying and the compliance we are doing when, again, the house is on fire and we're just trying to keep things moving forward? You know, I think that the thing that I would say, and, and, uh, and Tim and I have talked about this extensively, both on and off uh, mic, is the idea that companies, just by nature of the current situation, may be willing to take on more risk right now. Just that's just that they're, you know, would not 
many of our clients and many other companies that we're aware of, they're just willing to take on more risk right now because they have to, because they have to to survive or they have to, to hopefully not dig themselves too much of a hole for whenever this uh, crisis calms down. And as a result of that, they may be willing to, um, you know, modify what they're, they would normally be doing in the midst of compliance uh, on sanctions, export controls, anti-corruption or what have you. And, and there's, that's not, wrong like to be clear that is not wrong that is a reasoned business decision that people can be making and weighing the costs and benefits and the risks of doing that what we would encourage people to do and what we have been encouraging people to do is to make clear uh make a clear record of what you are doing yep. and where you are deviating perhaps from what you've done previously and and do it in a thoughtful way don't don't do it don't hopefully be doing it with you know, a, a metaphorical gun to your head where a business person says, I have to say yes, we have to say yes to this. So just justify it, just rubber stamp it, just paper it in some way that'll do that, right? That's, that's how people can get into trouble and how we could see uh, enforcement uh, actions coming down the road, even on the administrative and civil side of things. So that I think is the, is the big takeaway from all this. And, and so I'll, I'll throw it to Tim to, to add to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, they say it so much, I think we get lost in the boilerplate, but, but OFAC and the other agencies do encourage a risk-based analysis to compliance. And in a normal time, the risks of not going forward with a transaction are usually pretty small. I mean, you might lose some money, but, but um, you know, certainly slowing down a transaction is not even usually going to cost you any money. It might cost you a little bit of time. It's not going to cost you very many deals. It, in in this environment where you've got companies doing bet the company transactions, like save the company transactions, the risk of not going forward is huge. And so, so you, so, you know, in, in a risk-based analysis, you're going to take that risk into account. Now you're still going to do as much diligence as you can in the time frame. But if you spend 10 years doing diligence and the company goes under in year, you know, in it, six, six days after you start, it's not going it, to, that is not a, a good, it's that a is bad a pyrrhic, risk. That is a pyrrhic victory, as they right. say. <laughs> right. It is a bad risk-based analysis. And so, so I do think that the risks of not going forward are, are so high in this environment that you really do need to make sure that you are not, you know, um, uh, it, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. So, so I think you really want to make sure that you're, you're doing this right. And like you said, documenting it. So you're essentially saying we had to, we had to do the due diligence in a certain amount of time frame, or else the company would go under. So we did this and here's what we found and we cleared all the red flags we could. Ultimately, you can never clear all red flags. We did our best. And we think that this transaction is, is, has sufficiently low risk that we can move forward with it as a good it's, business. It's sound given what we know. Yeah. Right. And, and if it turns out later that you got something wrong, I do think that although the, the standard is the standard, um, that, that an enforcer looking at that, if they understand kind of the circumstances in which the decision was made and, and the real business reason for why you couldn't think, you only had two days to think about this because if you thought for three, there'd be nothing to think about because you wouldn't have a company anymore, that, that is, that's gonna be viewed as reasonable by most decision makers. And, and, and at least hopefully it will because otherwise, um, you know, it, you don't want this environment where compliance's whole job is to, to kill the business. Right. Agreed. Um, okay. And with that, we're going to turn now to the final question. So for those who are fans of the lightning round 
and in particular, the sweet sound effect that our producer, Matt, uh, put into the last episode. We're not doing a lightning round this, this week in light of our FAQ format, but um, uh, hopefully we'll next a, time. We'll need an FAQ sound effect. We'll need an point. FAQ. I don't, I don't know what that'll what is, be. But, what does an FAQ sound like? I, I think that's, I no, that's, I, the, that's the theme the same of the next thing. podcast. A, a tree falling in the wilderness. I think they sound exactly. a lot alike. Um, okay, so last question. So I saw recently that an Iranian company lost its case in federal district court in DC, challenging its inclusion on the SDN list. How often are SDNs actually successful in suing their way off the list? So, so for that one, the answer is not very often. Um, you know, I, I do think that there are two grounds to get off the list. One of the grounds is that OFAC got it wrong. Um, and the other ground is that the circumstances have changed. And, and um, I do think that, that there is a decent amount of success in terms of um, convincing OFAC to take companies and people off the list. It's not uh, as a proportion. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And, no. and people win that. It's yes. hard. Um, but if you put together the right showing, you can win that. I do think that there are, are some situations where, you know, as years pass and OFAC is considering a delisting petition, it, it ultimately decides to take people and companies off the list because it decides that the, enough time has changed and the circumstances have changed that they get off the list um, either because of the delisting petition or just kind of through the passage of time and potentially a lawsuit prompts that action by OFAC. But, but when you sue OFAC, um, the number of cases where you beat OFAC is very small. I mean, we talked about Exxon a couple of months ago as an example of one case where, where someone sued, sued um, OFAC and beat OFAC in, in a slightly different context, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't delisting of an SDN, but it was um, a similar context in the sense that the reason that it's very hard to beat OFAC if you sue OFAC is they get deference and they get a lot of deference because all agencies get some deference, at least uh, at this point, the Supreme Court is rethinking the deference doctrines, but all agencies get a certain amount of deference for their decisions when you challenge them. Um, and OFAC, as the national security agency, whose uh, designations are often based on classified information, gets a whole lot of deference. And so essentially, when you, if, if they decide after a challenge that, the, that they had sufficient evidence to uh, designate you, that they think they got the decision right and that no circumstances have changed, courts are almost always going to go along with that. And so, you know, we saw that again recently in a decision from the district court in DC, uh, Judge Leon, who is um, a longtime member of the, the DC bench and actually has said a lot of, uh, done a lot of, made a lot of decisions in the Iran context. Um, in fact, he was the, the judge who disapproved the deferred prosecution agreement in the Fokker matter, um, ultimately got reversed, but is certainly a, a strong advocate for strong enforcement actions against um, violators or potential violators of the Iran sanctions. And, and the Fulman company that was the, the designee that was challenging um, the OFAC designation and had filed a delisting petition uh, in front of OFAC first, and then when it lost in front of Judge Leon, um, I think found that out as well. I mean, certainly um, the opinion is, is written in a way uh, that certainly uh, defers to OFAC and um, seems to emphasize the importance uh, to, to Judge Leon of the, uh, the enforcement of the Iran sanctions. And, and Fulman had been designated for uh, allegedly working with the Iranian nuclear program actually quite a while back. Um, and 
it, the, the, the hook that Fullman had for trying to bring a lawsuit and for trying to get off the list is that it had also challenged a designation uh, in the EU for the same conduct and had won, the had won the challenge in the EU and been removed from the EU sanctions list, um, I think back in 2013, but it had been quite a while ago. And so it won that challenge uh, based on the removal from the list, brought a challenge first in front of OFAC in, in 2014, and when it lost in front of OFAC, um, it brought a lawsuit, uh, both under the, the federal constitution, the Fifth Amendment, but also under the Administrative Procedures Act. And Judge Leon um, held that they had no standing to bring a suit under the uh, Due Process Clause because uh, foreign nationals, there's at least some law out there that suggests foreign nationals have no ability to sue for violations of the Fifth Amendment. That, that, law, is, is, that, that law is murky at this point. Um, there's certainly some old cases that say that, but they have been challenged in the circuit. And Judge Leon even recognized that, pointing out that the DC Circuit has suggested in most instances, you don't rely on that, that you um, move on to also determine whether there was a due process violation because you can easily resolve the case if you decide whether you have a due process right or not, um, your due process rights weren't violated. He, he, he found that as well, but that analysis was very quick. Um, so he did find that, there, that if they had a due process right, it was not violated, but his main pillar of his decision was that there was no standing to bring a due process claim. On the APA claim, it was deference, deference, deference. Um, essentially, uh, the, the OFAC had um, found that, uh, that, that Fullman was involved in uh, some, some nuclear pro proliferation activities in Iran based on Fullman's admissions during the administrative proceedings. And so Judge Leon relied on that as a reasonable basis for OFAC to determine that Fullman had actually done what they were um, accused of doing. And he distinguished away the EU proceedings, um, essentially saying they were procedural, that, that Fullman had, had gotten delisted in the EU because the EU listing bodies had, had not followed the right procedures, but not because it wasn't involved in nuclear proliferation activity. So, so it's just another good example of, you know, it's very hard to sue OFAC uh, and win if OFAC fights back. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just make two quick observations and then we can wrap up. But um, it struck me that uh, and not to Monday morning quarterback this too much, but th there was obviously a lot of eggs put in the basket of, well, the EU delisted me or delisted our company. And that was the basis or that it was claimed that that was the basis that OFAC had listed the company in the first place, that it was a, just a reciprocity matter, uh, rather than actually pushing and trying to make um, arguments based on the record. And, and sort of trying to, and this is something that goes way back to when this was just in front of OFAC at the administrative level. And it looks like that argument kind of carried through. So um, Judge Leon, not surprisingly, just sort of dismisses that out of hand that like there's no deference owed by OFAC to the EU for anything. And to the extent that you think that that's what this was all about, you're mistaken. That was essentially what the takeaway from that was. And I think the, the, the thought there is that, you know, the conduct that this, uh, company was accused of engaging in was is so old at this point. I mean, it's you know 12, 13 years ago that um, you know we've seen success in cases where um, uh, listed parties come forward and they say, look, we uh, you know yes, we agree. Back in the day, we had some connections. We did some things with those people. That is now old, stale 
conduct. The people involved are gone. We've remediated. We've, we have a sanctions compliance program in place now. We haven't had anything to do with them in years, et cetera. You try, you try to do the, we've turned over a new leaf and we've moved on from that bad conduct in the past. And that that could potentially be, and in OFAC's regs, it even sort of suggests that that's a path to, to, to delisting. So that's one thing that was it, apparently not argued here. The other, the last thing I'll say is, this was the posture here in the in the district court was it was a motion to dismiss by the government and it was a cross motion for summary judgment by the plaintiff. It strikes me that where we've seen success in some of these cases is a plaintiff survives a motion to dismiss and gets into discovery and finds a way to, to sort of put some pain on the government in terms of discovery because as we know with a classified portion of the record with other aspects of uh, discovery that the government may not want to share we we have seen some instances where they will essentially just uh, wave the white flag and and delist. And so it strikes me that that was not the strategy that was chosen here. And in fact, there's a there's a uh, a note somewhere in the opinion that note that sort of observes that you chose not to obtain discovery and you went straight to summary judgment. Yep. Uh, it may not have made a difference here because if if Judge Leon was ready to rule for the government on motion to dismiss, it may not have made, um, you know, again, outcome may not have been any different, but it strikes me that we have seen some success in the past where parties have, have pushed hard to survive that initial motion to dismiss and have uh, pushed in discovery and then actually had some good outcomes. So just a couple of thoughts and observations uh, on, uh, on my end. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, as you pointed out, Brian, it is easy to Monday morning quarterback. But that said, there was a lot in that opinion um, to suggest that at least Judge Leon was, was, was critical of the way the case had been presented both at the OFAC stage and at the district court stage. So at the OFAC stage, you know, you had this situation where it is possible. I mean, I actually think it might be true that OFAC actually did designate them solely on the basis of the EU designation. But then after the delisting petition was filed, apparently, at least from the record, OFAC kept asking questions and the answers kept admitting having done the things that OFAC thought they did. So if OFAC might have started out that case with no record, but the delisting proceedings themselves created the record for to, to kind of backfill right. um, support for the listing. And then by the same token, you know, the district court proceedings, the judge would was critical of the 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 pleading in which uh, the the, the um, plaintiff had said that they had no connection to the U.S., which invoked right. this line of cases that said that if you have no connection to the U.S. and you're a foreign national, you have no standing. You, you know standing. <laughs> and then so they came back and said, "Well, let us take that back." And Judge Leon yeah. wasn't having any of that. And in the yeah. same way, this discovery stuff, where essentially. Um, they they waived discovery and then came back afterwards when it looked like discovery might have been helpful and said, hey, wait a minute, can we do some discovery? Again, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, yeah. but certainly mm -hmm. Judge Leon was was not. Yeah, we're not trying to be overly impressed. critical, obviously, but right. it, those but these things are uh, the mem the memorandum opinion that just came out you know, f a few days ago is worth a read for anybody who's who's interested uh, in, in this topic and, and sort of delisting strategies and, and uh, generally, which obviously we spend way too much time thinking about yep. uh, day to day. Um, so with that, I think that wraps up our inaugural uh, FAQ um, episode of Embargoed. We did, it. We we did, did it. it. We gave some actual answers. Hopefully people yep. will think they're actually insightful rather than just a bunch of uh, gobbledygook that we've thrown at the wall. Um, and with that, before we, before we part and go our separate ways, uh, uh, to our separate, uh, zoom, 
uh, you know, happy hours here on a Friday afternoon. Uh, what, any, any final thoughts from you, Tim? I hope that um, we can continue to do this, this and at some point pass OFAC in the number of FAQs that we've answered. <laughs> we did seven in, in close to an hour, maybe a little more than an yeah, hour. Yeah, just but, over an hour. So, but, yeah. so seven an hour, I mean, if OFAC goes at that rate. They, we're going to have to, would... yeah, we're going to have to start recording more often if we're going to catch up to OFAC because they have several hundred, but you know, that's those go, hashtag goals. Goals. Uh, and if we're never, we've got goals. And if we're going to be at home for the rest of our natural lives, then, you know, exactly. maybe we'll have time. So, exactly. uh, so with that, uh, until next time, thank you again for uh, listening to Embargoed. We encourage everybody, of course, to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, um, and give us a rating, hopefully five stars. And uh, until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay at home, stay healthy. And of course, stay, stay sanctions free, free, my friends. Until next time. Thanks.